Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast, episode 167, if I'm correct. Delighted to be joined by Jason Bay, the owner of Blissful Prospecting. Jason, you're very welcome to the show. Good to be here. I'm excited. Delighted to have you on the show. A lot of people speak highly of you. Um, typical fashion of the show, we spend the first three, four, five minutes getting to know the guest. No different in this scenario. From your LinkedIn, I can see that you went to university in Oregon. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't know if that's where you grew up. So take me back. Where did you grow up and what was it like when you grew up? Any kind of favorite hobbies? Oh, hobbies. Uh, I So yeah, I did grow up in Oregon, which depending on where you're listening to this, I don't know how familiar everyone here is with the geography of the United States, but that's like basically as west as you can go in uh, the United States and it's below Washington above California. It's kind of in this weird place we call the Pacific Northwest. So there's a lot of forests. It's very rainy, you know, all that kind of stuff. A lot of mountains. Um, me growing up, I mean, I was really shy kid. So I remember when I was five years old, my parents were like, hey, you're going to play soccer. And uh, I was like, oh, shit, you know, I'm going to have to, you know, meet a bunch of people that I don't know. And there's a coach that I don't know, all this other stuff. And I remember my mom dropping me off for soccer practice and I'm getting out of the van and I'm walking up to the field and I had both my hands around my eyes, you know, like this, because I was so embarrassed that the coach, he saw me and he was paying attention to me. You know what I mean? I was like, just so shy about that. I, I scored a goal one time and people were clapping. And as soon as I realized that they were clapping for me, I got so embarrassed. The coach had to take me out of the game because I couldn't continue playing. You know, I was so uncomfortable with the attention. So that's sort of who I was as a as a kid. But in terms of hobbies, yeah, sports I was definitely into: soccer, basketball, played football. And then I, I think the thing I've kept with me the most is I learned how to play guitar when I was thirteen. So I've played electric guitar and acoustic guitar since then. But yeah, it's a little bit about me. I was a pretty shy kid. Slick. Um... People can usually point to a handful of people, parents, acquaintances, mm. former teachers, colleagues, perhaps, that had a massive impact on them in their early years. So think pre-18, that's helped them okay. become the person they are today. Does anybody spring to mind for you? Yeah, a few people. One of them that was a really big influence for me was my basketball coach in high school. So his name's Mr. Wood. And he... I really connected with him in a way that I didn't really connect with anyone else. Yeah. Especially coaches, you know, coaches are usually, you know, kind of hard asses and they don't, they care a lot about your performance and winning games and stuff like that. I feel like he actually cared about me as a person. You know, he was someone, one of the first people outside of maybe my dad, like men in my life that I actually looked up to and wanted to be like, so he was a really great coach, very good at what he did. we just really connected on a personal level. And for my senior project, I remember we did these things where you have to learn about jobs and occupations and stuff. And um, he made me want to become a coach and teacher and that sort of thing. And what I would do my senior year is literally every, at the end of every you know day, I would just go, he was the vice principal at the time. I would just go hang out in his office for 30, 60 minutes. We just talked about life, you know, and that was really big for me because 
I don't know. I just saw for the first time someone that like you can really care about a person as an individual and also care about winning games or in sales, closing deals, and also care about the individual. And he was the, just the first example of that. I think that I really saw and also looked up to him, you know, as a person. So I'm a lot, I think that's where my desire now to coach and train salespeople, I think it started there in high school. Shout out to Mr. Wood. If Mr. Wood's still yeah. in that school, this clip will be a great snippet to send to him because I've done it before yeah. where people have shouted out acquaintances, teachers, and sent it to them with their permission. And every time it almost makes the person cry on the other end. Yeah. Um, I want to fast forward a little bit to your university days. Um, you studied criminology. Yeah. The field that you're in now, help me connect the dots. Yeah, it was short-lived. So uh, I remember when I was a senior in high school, I was racking my brain around, you know, what am I going to do, for, you know, for a job? And I watched a lot of CSI. And I was like, oh, it'd be kind of cool to do what they do in CSI and bring analyze evidence and, you know, bust criminals and all this other stuff. They make it look so glory. You know, they really glorify it, right? And what I found out in taking classes is that, you know, the characters in CSI they do three or four people's jobs in one. That's just not how it works. You know, a forensic scientist just sits in a lab, they analyze evidence. They don't even know what case it's a part of just to reduce bias. So you don't even know what you're working on. Do you know what I mean? And there was two of them in, or in the entire state of Oregon. So once I figured that out, I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't really want to go into forensic science. And I got into sales by accident. Uh, Guy Barry, he's one of my best friends now. He came into my classroom and he worked for a company where they hire college students, university students, they teach them how to run a house painting business. And it's an internship. You get to learn about how to run a business and marketing and sales. And they hire about 30, you know, 3,500 or so college kids across the United States every year. And the whole premise was make $10,000 for school over the summer. So I raised my hand because I was like, yeah, I stacked wood on a cart doing manual labor the summer prior. This sounds awesome. I didn't know that I would be going door to door to sell the house painting services. <laughs> so this happened in November, I'm hired, I'm all excited. In February, we go to a training and they're like, oh yeah, you know, a big part of the training was how to talk to people going door to door. And I'm, you know, I'm pretty shy still at this age. And I'm just frightened to do that. You know, I'm gonna go in my hometown of Brookings, Oregon, 5,000 people, I'm gonna run into a lot of people I know too, you know? But it ended up going really well. I was a nervous wreck prior to getting started, but you know, I had a bunch of friends come with me. We got, you know, 120-ish people that first weekend to sign up for, you know, interest in getting an estimate. And then I closed like $100,000 worth of paint jobs over the summer, made almost 30 grand for school and sales came pretty naturally to me. So after that, I was obsessed with sales because it was the only, I never even looked at it as an option for a career. I didn't, I thought that salespeople were the traditional you know, the used car salesperson or like the really pushy guy that tries to sell you like ovens or refrigerators or whatever, you know what I mean? And running a business, I never really looked at either because all the examples in my family were people running brick and mortar businesses. So I figured it was either brick and mortar or you try to become a fortune 500 CEO. You know what I mean? I didn't know that there was all of this in between. So that was my first foray into sales. And then the last three years of university, I was a sales manager for them. That did not come naturally to me, by the way. So I was really good at doing this thing and teaching it. There was such a big learning curve for me. 
in teaching it. And I think the biggest lesson I have for any sales leader or people managing salespeople or managing sales managers too is, and this is the advice that I was given that was totally true, is the things that come naturally to you are probably going to be the biggest weaknesses of the people on your team because you're just not going to think about those things. So all of the things that came naturally to me around oh yeah, it makes a lot of sense you would build rapport with someone before you ask for the sale. It makes a lot of sense that you would try to prevent objections so that you don't have to deal with them at the end. You know, uh, It makes a lot of sense that when you're selling a house painting uh, job that you would want both decision makers to be there, the husband, the wife. All of these things made a lot of sense to me to do. Now, p- other people that were getting into sales, a lot of those things, they didn't naturally think about those things and I didn't focus on them. So that's been a really big lesson for me. And what I enjoy most about now is you know, knowing your blind spots and your weak spots and knowing where to focus your coaching effort and your training effort, knowing that there's going to be a lot because you're in this position that came naturally to you that's not going to come naturally to the average person on your team. A lot of questions to unpack there that can get us into prospecting. That job that you're talking about at the beginning, was that with College Works Painting? I see that you spent six years there. Uh, you ended up finishing up as director of marketing and corporate sales trainer, reading from my note here. Uh, on LinkedIn, yep. it says that you turned around the social selling, creating 2,900% increase in Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn engagement. What did that look like when you came in and managed to achieve that? Can you talk me through you know, like 60 seconds, 90 yeah. seconds of, of what that was before we jump into everything through a Bristol process? So what I did as a marketing director and a corporate sales trainer has laid the foundation for everything that I do now. So I was coming into a company they were doing at the time about $35 million in annual revenue, which is big for a house painting company. And they had no formal marketing department. So they said, Jason, you're going to be the marketing director. We've never had a marketing department before. So Ryan, I didn't even know what a landing page was. I didn't know how people use social media for business. I had a Facebook account and a Twitter account. I didn't know how you would use it in a business context. So I had to learn all of that stuff. This is from 2011, 2013. So I had to learn all that stuff from scratch. And a big part of it was the brand. How do we talk about what we do to our customers and to these students? And a big thing that I ended up doing with them that is a good segue into this prospecting stuff is I built uh, their first call center. So they have hundreds of thousands of people sign up for estimates every year and they have field sales reps go out and book the appointments. Well, there's a lot of waste. They paint 10,000 houses a year, but 200,000 people sign up for it. There's all of this data in there that's just not being utilized. So I built an inside sales team and we would call on those you know, homeowners all across the country, both cold calling and then also through these people that signed up and we would set these appointments. And the way that I got into more consulting was in 2013, I wanted to do that for other companies. And I started working more with B2B companies because I realized that, hey, inside sales is a lot easier when you're doing a B2B. B2C is, I don't don't even think there's a future for that, for cold calling, (laughs) you know, B2C cold calling. You know, 70%, I think, of America is on the do not call registry. You know what I mean? So um, I just noticed that the B2B stuff was easier because you could research people, you could email them, you could call them, you could hit them up on LinkedIn, and I could do some research on you and, and actually show you that I know a little bit about you, which you really can't do in B2C. Mm. Before we move on to the prospecting, which we touched on, 
um, it probably makes sense for you to give the 30 second commercial of what blissful, pro- pro- blissful prospecting is rather than me because it's your baby. So the mic is yours. Yeah. So what I like to say is that we help reps and sales teams who love landing big meetings, you know, that turn into qualified opportunities, but hate having to send hundreds of cold emails that go and responded or making hundreds of cold calls and people don't pick up. There's lots of rejection, et cetera. So uh, what I spend a lot of time doing is helping companies figure out how to turn complete strangers into qualified opportunities and eventually you know, into paying clients and customers. Big, big market for that. Um, I looked at your LinkedIn and that's usually one of the places I go to, to look for kind of questions around for my guests that I have. Yeah. And one of the, one of the questions I had was you've been posting hacks lately um, and that will lead us nicely to some of the content that you've got to offer. But uh, one of the hacks you posted about on LinkedIn, which was a video that caught my attention was using your competitor content to get a 10% plus a uh, cold email reply rate. So can you talk to me about, how can someone leverage their competitor's content to increase their reply rate? Yeah. yeah, if I could even step back a little bit from that, sure. the what what we're the reason why we're doing that exercise is that if we look at outbound as a simple equation, so the number of quality meetings that you land is going to be volume of outreach multiplied by quality of outreach. Yeah. A lot of the ways that people approach cold outreach is they say volume. I'm going to send out thousands of emails through a system that requires one click, or I'm going to sit on an auto dialer that just dials out for me and does all of this stuff. There's a huge focus on volume right now, but you can reach out to as many people as you want. If the quality is not really that good and you have a 0.1% conversion rate into a meeting, take a thousand and multiply it by 0.1. That's one freaking meeting off a thousand people that you reach out to. That's not good. We want to get that into the three, four, five, six, seven percent range. So the way that you do that, quality, what makes up that is it's the quality of your message. It's the soft skills. So when I get someone on the phone, I'm able, do I have good conversation skills, right? And it's the quality of the prospects that you're reaching out to. Are these good fit targets? So the message part is where I spend a lot of time. So that's the what does the email say? What do you say when you cold call someone? So those hacks were a bunch of different things that you could do to improve the messaging. So where most people miss the market when they're sending a cold email is they talk all about themselves or when they do a cold call, they talk all about themselves. So I'll give you an example, Ryan, let's, if we do a cold call example, it'll, because <laughs> we're communicating here, um, it'll make a little bit more sense. Sure. So a lot of people will do this on a cold call. Um, let's just role play, actually. You pretend to be a prospect, okay? <laughs> Um, and we'll just make up something random, but I'll go ring, ring, you pick up and say hello. And I'll, I'll give you a scenario of what a typical salesperson might do. That's right. Um, ring, ring. Hello. Uh, Hey, Brian, it's Jason with Blissful Prospecting. Uh, look, the reason I was giving you a call is I run a sales training company and we've worked with companies like Zoom and Medallia, and we have a six week training program called an outbound accelerator. And it is a really good way to improve the response rates to your cold emails with your reps. And yeah, and I just go on and on and on about myself. <laughs> okay, I was hoping your eyes would have glossed over. It wasn't a good example. I was like, this is, <laughs> this is boring. <laughs> yeah. So that's what most reps do. Yep. Is they come in and talk about themselves. What I want to do in a cold call or a cold email or whatever it is, I want to get the prospect to talk about themselves. The way that I get a person to talk about themselves is, 
not to just listen more, although that helps, it's to talk about things that they're interested in, that is top of mind for them. So when we create our messaging, what we want to know is what is the priorities and the problems of the people that we're reaching out to, not our solution. So I'll give you a, a practical example. So one of my clients, they, one of their prospects is uh, someone that is a clinical operations uh, specialist. So they sell into companies that are medical devices and they run clinical trials. So these medical devices, it's like ABC widget, they want to run a clinical trial because if they can like prove through science that their medical device actually works, it's going to sell like hotcakes. So these clinical operations folks, they manage these trials. There's a setup part of the trial and then there's a completion of an ongoing trial. So if I cold call someone and try not to give me any objections here, I'll just tell you, you know, kind of roughly what it sounds like when you do this well. Sure. Um, ring, ring. Hello. Hey, Ryan, this is Jason with uh, ABC Company. Um, I know I probably caught you in the middle of something, but you got a minute for me to tell you why I'm calling and then you can let me know if you want to keep chatting. Sure. I've got 60 seconds. Perfect. So uh, the reason I was giving you a call is I noticed you're a clinical operations specialist at ABC Company. And typically I find when I talk to you folks that you're focused on one of two things right now. So one, you're about to start a trial. And what you're thinking about is how you can enable the recruitment of the volunteers for that trial as quickly as possible so you can get the product to market. Or two, you might have a trial in progress right now. And the biggest thing that you're focused on is the retention of the participants in that trial so that people aren't dropping out, the data is accurate, all of that good stuff. Which of those two things is the bigger focus for you right now? Uh, the second one. Yeah, and then we would have a conversation and we can ask questions around that second thing. I didn't start the call, I call that a priority drop. Mm -hmm. So I talked about you and what people like you are focused on instead of me and what my product or my widget does. So those messaging hacks, what that will help you do is that priority drop I did. The reason why that's so sharp and specific is because um, I'm using competitors content to find that stuff. Yep. I'm using my existing customers and I'm interviewing them. I'm listening and asking questions when I do a discovery or a demo call. I'm asking questions like, hey, Ryan, what made you decide to take the call today? What are the top two or three goals or initiatives that you have over the next six months that relate most with what we're going to talk about today? And then writing down word for word what the person says. And I can use that stuff to inform the outbound messaging. So I'm going to create messaging based on what people like this prospect talk about. So why do you think it is? Because let me take a step back for a second. There was a recent report by Bravado, and I'm just pulling one of many. Um that said, those who like uh, want to earn more than $250,000, question mark. And it said that more than 50% of those that are in that category of more than, or more than a quarter of a million uh, have been through training with like the likes of Medic or Sandler or Challenger or whatever it may be, John Barrows or Blissful Prospecting. Um, but, and, I, and I've sat in a multiple training sessions with, with all the names that I've mentioned. And so, Reps are getting trained, your methodology of choice, part that aside for a second. Reps are getting trained on, on these things, but so few still take that and actually do what they're being trained on. Why do you think that is? Oh, man. It's such a loaded question. <laughs> because because I've, 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 yeah. I've, I've, I've 
you know, in my earlier days, I would have said, hey, look, can I sit in on your training session today? I'm kind of just looking to shadow the, the trainer. And, and you'll see sometimes you'd have the best trainers in the world um, and yeah. watching them train. And there's, you could break the class down and the people at the back of the room would be like in and out on calls on their laptop, not paying attention. And then it's like, that can't be easy on a trainer knowing that there's a kind of a sliver of the back 10% that just don't give a shit. Um, but yeah, the, the evidence is there that if you want to get to this level, you know, there's tons of training out there and there's tons of things you can do to improve yourself, but there's not a hundred percent of people that do that. So I can't wrap yeah. my head around why don't they, if the evidence is there. Yeah. yeah. I think there's two parts to this. I do think it's part of it is on the training and the trainer mm -hmm. and the content of the training. And then there's a big part of responsibility on the individual rep, of course. On the right? manager, you think so? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So let's actually put that into a group, rep, manager, company, and then the company that is training and doing all the other stuff, right? The outside you know, sort of person. Let's start with the outside stuff first. So there is a... The way that I see a lot of this stuff taught is it's very cookie cutter tactics. That's not a yeah. knock on any training company, actually, by the way, because um, the stuff is good. What I think is missing is it's I, I like to think of the what I was taught from my business coaches um, that I work with right now. I love this really simple framework of why, what, how. So if I'm teaching you, Ryan, let's say we're teaching you how to cold call. And the first thing that I want to talk to you about is a permission-based opener, right? Sandler calls them upfront contracts. So what I'm not going to do is I'm going to say, hey, Ryan, so when you make a cold call, you're going to say this at the beginning. Hey, Ryan, I know I probably got you in the middle of something, but do you got 30 seconds for me to tell you why I'm calling and you can let me know if you want to keep chatting? I'm not going to start with that. That's a how-to tactic because you're not going to know what to do with that besides regurgitate word for word what I said. Yeah. That doesn't really serve you as a rep because you're going to have trouble applying that across different situations. So what I'm going to start instead of with the how, I'm going to start with the why. So I'm going to say something like this. So this is, by the way, I think on the company side of things, how they need to train stuff. They give people a playbook and just say, hey, just say these things, use these templates. So if I talk about the why of a permission-based opener, I say, hey, Ryan, so when you cold call someone, what I want you to think about is what it's like to pick up a phone call from someone and you don't know who it is. What do you think is going through the prospect's head? Well, you know, they might think you're someone else. They might want to know if it's a salesperson. They might want to know if it's a doctor that's been trying to get whatever it might be, right? Yeah, yeah. They probably didn't pick up on the phone on purpose thinking that it was a salesperson and they want to talk to you. So they probably... If they had the choice, they don't want to talk to you, <laughs> right? And what we need to do is allow the prospect to opt in to being on that call so they don't feel like they're being forced to participate in there. And what's going to happen when they feel like they can opt in and choose whether or not they want to participate in that uh, phone call, you'll find that people are a lot more receptive because they said yes and they want to listen to you. Yeah. So we do that by using a permission-based opener. That's the what. Yep. Here's how that sounds. So when I start with why, what you're thinking now is, oh, so when I do cold outreach, if I can look for ways to get prospects to opt in and say yes to something that's smaller than taking the meeting, it's going to be a lot more effective. I wonder how I could use that with an email. And instead of at the end of an email, say, do you have 15 minutes tomorrow to discuss this? I say, 
is this worth unpacking further or interested in chatting further or whatever variation of that? I want you to understand the why. So I think that's the first part with these training, uh, any kind of training, whether it's a, you know, one of the big shops that you, one of the big shops that you mentioned or internally is you have to teach why, what, how, this is how people learn. Yeah. That's based off of a framework in higher education around how they teach curriculum, why, what, and how. So that's the big, that's the first big part. The second part we can talk about is more the responsibility of the rep and the manager. Uh, where I see, and this has been talked about a lot, but you know, 99% of the uh, investments in training across sales teams is for the individual rep and very few companies actually get training for their managers. Oh, almost so it's, it's almost none. So it's, it's the classic story of Ryan was the number one rep on the team and now we make him a manager. And we think that because you're so good at doing this, that you're going to be really good at teaching. I told a story earlier about how that wasn't the case with me. Yep. Michael Jordan, if that was the case, he would be the best basketball coach, but he's not. Phil Jackson is one of the best basketball coaches of all time. And he was an okay player. He was no Hall of Fame player though. You know what I mean? So teaching and coaching, that's an important distinction that those are two very different things. Training and coaching are very different. And a lot of companies approach training as if it's the cure-all. Training, for anyone listening, if, if, if you haven't heard of this being a difference or don't know the difference, the difference between training and coaching is training, I'm going to teach you something. I'm going to get an hour session together. I'm going to get all, all the reps in one room, and we're going to talk about how to make a cold call. Coaching is the reinforcement of that training. You can do coaching in group settings, too. It's a little tougher. I do a lot of group coaching. Um, but coaching is, let's listen to Ryan make a cold call and let's give him feedback on his permission-based opener or the, how he handled this objection. Let's connect the dots and help with the application of the material. Yeah. So training, coaching, two very different things. What I don't see companies doing enough of is the coaching part of it. They'll do decent amount of trainings, but you need to do one-on-one coaching with every rep every single week. There needs to be some coaching Yeah, and, without and, fail. There has to be. And, and, and a lot of managers would just say, I don't have the time to analyze your gong calls or whatever your choice of technology is. The really good trainers that I've seen, what stands them out in my mind is, I'm sure this term has been coined before, but edutainment, where they're both really good educators, but they're good entertainers and they can blend that really well. But I'd like to move on to video prospecting. Sure. Uh, I like it because it's, personal and something that can't be automated i mean you technically could you could record a video and send it to multiple people but if you wanted to be personal you can't really automate it um so one are you leveraging uh, video prospecting absolutely yep good uh and then the second part was combining hubspot and vidyard for me and i don't know your crm or your video platform or choice but combining them for me has been an absolute game changer where do you use video prospecting in your sales process? I know people that use it in multiple stages from the cold stage to the, you know, they might meet with a, a prospect, but the prospect goes and then talks to another decision maker and you're relying on that prospect to sell the decision, other decision maker as well as you did. So they use it to kind of do a recap video 
to send it to the decision maker so that they can kind of get their voice in yeah. there. And there's older ways you can use it as well. But for you, where do you use video prospecting? Yeah, so video, let's talk about, let's do the why, what, how that we just talked, which I've been doing this entire time, you know? So why video? I think the big thing with video from an outbound perspective is that if you have a solution where you can visually show someone something, video is so powerful. So instead of just talking about the problem that you see, so for example, I work with a client that, you know, helps with um, like customer support, live chat, you know, kind of stuff. So where they identify gaps is when a company doesn't have 24 seven live chat coverage, what happens is when people can't get questions answered on a retail site and they can't get an answer within 20, 30 minutes, there's a lot of data supporting that they'll just go to a competing site and order off it instead if they can't get help, <laughs> right? So they're losing sales. You know, what's really cool with a video is I can record a video and share my screen and say, I was on your site and I tried to start a chat and I noticed that no one was available to talk to me. And then I flip over to their competitor's site and I noticed that your competitor, they have this chat option. Let's talk about why that's important that they have 24 seven coverage. Statistically, Zendesk shows that, you know, about 52% of the time, if a customer can't get an answer within an hour, they'll just go to one of your competitors' website and order a similar product. It's called tab hopping. And I wanted to see if we could have a conversation. I'd love to tell you how we're helping companies like yours avoid their customers tab hopping and ordering from your competition instead. So why video is like, I can visually show stuff to people that is so much more powerful when I can show it to them instead of just talking about it. Yep. So that's one of many types of videos that you could send, but in terms of where this happens, I always think of everything in terms of a sequence. Yep. So your sequence, your cadence is the series of activities that you're going to do to get a hold of someone. I have a framework I call keep it simple sequencing, KISS, because people tend to overthink this. So you're going to follow this pattern every week. And it's built upon sequences. So any anyone that you look at, HubSpot, AutoClose, VanillaSoft, Outreach, SalesLoft, all the vendors are going to recommend something very similar. One, it needs to be multi-touch. So between phone, email, LinkedIn, you need 12 to 15 touches. And then it needs to be multi-channel. And in my opinion, it's got to be at least phone and email. You can add social on top of that if you want phone and email are a must. That's a minimum. And then you're going to follow that pattern over the course of three weeks. And I'll talk about video here in a second and where this fits in. Because I always want to think about where does phone fit into the sequence? Where does video fit into what I'm already doing? So the sequence on day one, let's say it's a Tuesday, I'm going to do three things. I'm going to call the prospect, email them, and hit them up on LinkedIn. I'm going to do all those things at, at once. Day three of the sequence, so I'm going to wait. I'm going to skip a day. On a Thursday, I'm just going to do a phone and an email touch. So that's five touches in one week. And you just do that three weeks in a row. So each week has a core message. So let's say the core message in week one is around why you need 24 seven available chat and the problems that happen if you don't have that. So I'm actually not gonna send a video the first time I reach out to someone. And the reason why is that I don't wanna waste time doing something that takes that much effort if the person doesn't wanna see it or will never look at it. So what I do is call follow the engagement. That's my, that's my advice is look for people that are already opening the emails that you're sending them and send a video to those people. Statistically, less than 50% of people are gonna open up the emails that you send them. That's your open rate. 
So people spend all of this time sending videos to people that never open an email from them. I don't know about you. That's a lot of wasted effort, <laughs> you know? So I'm going to send emails first, an email or two. I'm going to look to see who opens it. And then I'm going to throw a customized video into one of them. And I gave you one style of video that you can use. You can point out problems. Um, you can share content in the video. You could open up a, like a, a slide or two and show something educational. You could teach them about what their, comp their uh, competitors are doing. You could run some sort of analysis on your website. It totally depends on what you're selling. Or you could just do video like we're doing right now. It could just be the same message I would send in written form in an email. I just record a video. Say, hey, Ryan, Jason here, what's going on? I was reaching out because personalization. I noticed this thing. And I'm not sure if you're running into this or not, but here's a problem that sometimes that we hear when people are trying to do this. Uh, I'd love to share with you how companies like X, Y, and Z are, are managing that right now. Uh, I put a link in here so you can book a call if you want. Mm -hmm. You know, So I think video, that's where it kind of fits into the sequences. I'm going to send emails first, see who opens it. I also like using video through LinkedIn too. So when yes. someone accepts your LinkedIn connection request, you send a video to them. It's a, it's a, it's a delighter. They're not expecting it. Usually when people connect with you on LinkedIn, they're expecting to be pitched. Yep. So it's kind of a cool little little thing that you can do with video there. Yeah, I I love that. And I don't want to give away everything that, that, that you do. So I'm going to leave links below to any email me after this if there's anything specific you want me to put in the show notes, but your LinkedIn profile URL, your website, the yeah. section of your website, the messaging matrix guide. There's a couple of other things I'll link as well below. Um, and that Bravado report that I mentioned as well. One or two more questions before we finish up. Um, have you got a definition of what success means to you? Yeah, it's changed so much. Um, success for me right now, I kind of look in different buckets. So when I look at professional success, a lot of it is not only financially how much money I make, but how sustainable that is. So for me, what I've really prioritized is mental health this year and last. So I moved to a four-day work week. Um, I've like I put barriers and constraints on the number of hours that I work. It's actually made me a lot more productive. I actually get more done in four days than I do in five, um, which is interesting. But for me, it's how can I make a sustainable living? How can I make the money that we want, do the things that I really want to do, but then also do that in a way that where it doesn't just kill me, you know, mentally and physically to do that. Um, so that's how I kind of look at the professional stuff. Um, for me, um, on the more personal side, I really look at success as, you know, what is the quality of my marriage with my, my wife, Sarah, you know, um, are things good there? Cause for me, that's the domino effect for everything else, you know, in my life, are we communicating with each other? <laughs> you know, for me, it's, you know, am I being patient enough? You know, uh, am I attuning to her needs and like what she needs? Am I, am I able to set boundaries in my own personal life with my family or friends or whatever it might be? Um, so I don't really have like a super clear cut definition, I guess, but that's that's how I think about it. It's more about what I am able to optimize on the day to day stuff than a, like a big milestone, you know, type of thing for me. Gotcha. There, there's a probably the best book I've read and I like to read a lot uh, in the last 18 months has been a book called Stolen Focus. Essentially why we're, oh, okay. we're, we're losing attention. And it's currently the number two most sold book for the last like 14 weeks in the charts in the UK. Um, mm -hmm. and he's been on the guy who wrote it has been on a number of podcasts and the topic is fascinating, but there's a specific chapter in there around an Australian company that went to a four day work week 
and then other examples of how it actually increases your productivity. In a nutshell, this CEO found out that his workers were, out of the eight-hour day that they're in, let's say they're in nine to five, they were only really being productive for three of those hours. And he yep. said, what if I was to reduce from five to four days a week? All I need them to do is be 45 minutes more productive in the four days they're in the office to equal the productivity. And what he found was that they got more time out of the office to kind of re- like decompress or rewind and relax. That when they were in office, their productivity hit over four hours. So they were more productive and got more done, but were in the office one day less. And there's a m- multiple other examples. So you're bang on with the reducing to four days a week. The UK have recently announced, I think it was Scotland actually announced, I could be wrong, that they're going, all the companies are going to a four-day work week or some of them. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there's, there's a fair few announcements that have come out yeah. recently. Um, final question for you is... If you were brought into your old high school to give a talk, what's the topic? Oh, man. What's the topic? <laughs> um, oh, man. 60 minutes. This, this would be stage. Re- yeah, this would be very hard for me. I would really talk about how to get out of the town that they're in. But I wouldn't, <laughs> I I wouldn't talk about back. it like that. I, I wouldn't talk about it like that, though. Um, I would do that in a more, you know, kind of uplifting kind of way i wouldn't say hey this town's a small piece of shit you need to get out of here i wouldn't say that um to me i would i would get them to think about um how do i figure out and expose myself to things that i could really be interested in that's the part that i feel like i got super lucky with and that i found sales at 18 years old i realized that i wanted to run a business at that age Uh. i at 19 the first book I read was Little Red Book of Selling by Jeffrey Gittimer. And as soon as I saw him speak live, I was like, I want to be, do what this guy's doing. And I'm, I'm doing that right now. You know what I mean? Um, so he gave you a testimony as well. That must be pretty cool. Yeah, it was super cool. It's, yeah, it's been cool getting to interact with him and stuff. Um, so I think that what I would talk, I don't know what the topic necessarily would be, but what I would talk about is how to find out what you're really going to be super interested and passionate about. Yep. And how to make the most of your 20s. How to avoid some of the big mistakes that I made. You know, one of the big mistakes, you know, I made a decent amount of money, like I told you, you know, especially in college. And uh, I just, yeah, I've racked up like 25K of credit card debt twice in my 20s. Wow. You know? Yeah. So how to avoid stuff like that. I would talk about why you need to care more about your personal finances. I would talk about what type of experience that you really need to get. I would talk about all of the things that, I've learned through therapy and just how to get along better with my spouse and friends and all this other stuff that I, I just learned in the last couple of years. This is stuff I could have gotten a big head start on, you know, in my twenties. So that's what I would do is just like, if I could relive my, my twenties, here's what I would do, you know, kind of thing. That's, that's, that's what I would want to leave people with. And, and what I would want is for that to really inspire some people to get out of, out of the town, you know? For sure. Have you got any kids? No, not yet. If you've got any kids in the future or nieces, I'm sure you could. You you you'll be a great uncle or parent if if that's where, <laughs> you're, where your head is at. Yeah, yeah. Jason, it's been a it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Spending the last forty five minutes chatting to you. As I said, I'll yeah. leave anything you want it in the show notes. But for today, we'll leave it there. Beautiful morning. Get a song of my morning, babe. Nothing